Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we learned that many who heard the preached word of the author of Hebrews were sluggish hearers of the word. They were unable to take God's word and use it or apply it to their lives. The scripture says specifically they were dull of hearing and that they were spiritual babes unskilled in the word. I liked how one author describes what's going on in the end of Hebrews 5 and the beginning of Hebrews 6. He said it this way. He said, up until this point in the argument, we might wonder if the author is giving in to the baby's appetite. However, instead of giving them milk, the author pushes them to the adult's table and invites them to eat. Remember what it was like when you were expected to eat at the children's table instead of the adult's table? You were seated at this little wobbly table. Spills were occurring every two minutes or so. Essentially, what it was is it was mass chaos in a loud little room. Even the menu was different. Instead of steak and shrimp, you know, surf and turf, it was macaroni and hot dogs. To make matters worse, parents hope that their children don't realize that the adult table is much better. It is. Better company, better manners, better furniture, better food. Now, eventually, most of us figured that out. And we realized that the adult table is a lot better. Things would be greatly off if an adult man or woman kept going back to the children's table later on and wanting that food in that environment. Now, as the author of Hebrews looks at his audience, he sees far too many of them still at the children's table spiritually. They have no appetite for adult teaching in Scripture and no skill in using the word of righteousness in their lives. I want to ask you as we begin, what about you? Are you at the children's table or the adult's table when it comes to consuming spiritual things? Now, the author makes it clear in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we must leave the elementary teaching and go on to maturity. This morning, our sermon is short, the text is short, and I want to make two very simple points to you. So if you're taking those two-point outline, I'm going to tell you first what you need, and then secondly, how to get it. Right? Pretty easy. What you need, how to get it. So we start in verses 1 and 2, what you need. Therefore... Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Here the author of Hebrews tells his audience what they need, and it's summarized with one main idea. They must press on 
to maturity. Okay, it's, it's right in verse one. That's the main verb, main idea. You must press on to maturity. Now, I want you to notice a few things about that main idea. First, I want you to see that the author does soften this warning a bit. I said at the end of chapter five, he starts a section where his desire is to shame his hearers into listening to what he has to say. But it softens here a bit in that in chapter six, he starts using first person plural uh, nouns and verbs. Okay, so he changes it from second person plural, chapter five, verses 11 through 14. You are like this. You, you all need to do this too. In this section, he aligns himself with the readers and the warning is not just for them, it's for we. He includes himself. He identifies himself in this warning. But second, I want you to see that the words go on in chapter 6, verse 1, are extremely important and come from one command. So look again in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Very important beginning of the phrase here. This is, this is what they need to do. Spiritual maturity is the goal, and the way that they're going to get there, the, the means for reaching spiritual maturity is that they must press on. So those two words, go on, are a command, and they involve swift and energetic motion, as one commentator said, and they could be translated, move on or press on. Okay, so this is the main idea. Move on or press on forward to maturity. But he gets a little bit more specific like, than that at the end of chapter, verse 1 and throughout verse 2 when he says that they are not to again lay the foundation of six things. Now, there, there are different ways that you could um, that you could talk about these six things. I like to break them up into groups of two. Two groups. The first group is found at the end of verse one. They were not to lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And I think that these two things uh, uh, speak of their alleged conversion. And so I want to look at them very briefly with you. Uh, so first, they're to go beyond the foundation of repentance from dead works. That's what the text says. Now, I think it's important to understand that each of the six things we're going to talk about today are actually good and important for newer young believers. Okay, so this first one, you're not to lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works is a fundamental mark of any true believer. Dead works, I think, speak of man's futile attempts to save himself. So this phrase, dead works, is only used here and one other place in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 9.14. And in that verse, the author says that Christ's blood cleanses our conscience from dead works. Philip Hughes, one of the commentators I read this week, described dead works. He said that those words are theological shorthand for the, the state of the unregenerate man or woman 
in his activities um, as an unbeliever. And so, brothers and sisters, men who are dead in trespasses and sins are incapable of producing living works. So works are useless. In this passage, works are dead. And so the author uses another word to describe them. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from those dead works. And the idea here is uh, repentance is their change of mind regarding the value of their own works. The change of mind regarding the value of your own works. This turning from trusting in your works, this change of mind regarding that, supposedly occurred in the past of his hearers. So the author is saying they must not attempt to go back to that again. Repentance from the dead works. Supposedly they've already changed their mind about the value of their works. Now, he then moves on to another mark of conversion, and that is faith toward God. So you look at the end of verse 1. We're just working through these six things very quickly. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Of course, in the Old Testament, people, the Jewish people, had faith in the provision of salvation by Yahweh God. So people were saved in the Old Covenant system the same way they're saved in the New Covenant system. Old Testament, New Testament, their faith was still in God, that God would provide a Messiah. In the New Covenant, Jesus comes along and he boldly proclaims now that no one will be able to come to the Father but by, finish it for me, me. Jesus now is the only way for someone to be accepted by God. That is what the author is talking about here is how his readers claimed in the past to turn Toward God in faith. And so I take verses one, I think these first two topics are about conversion. He talks about repentance and faith as the two components for someone to be accepted by God, to be converted. This is extremely important. So if anyone came up to you today, if you're a member of Colonial Baptist Church, they came up to you today and they, they, they said, how can I be saved? How can I be converted? You better say, repent and believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. That's the only way for someone to be saved. So I, I think these first two are about conversion. Now the author is not undermining the importance of faith and repentance in these opening words. He's simply informing his audience that it's time for them to move beyond these things in their theological appetite. These things... Faith and repentance only represent the very beginning. The very beginning of the Christian life. It's the foundation. Ultimately, though, they're not to lay again the foundation of some other things as well. And so as you look at verse 4, there are four things there. And I see these as all describing elementary Christian teaching. Or some of the curriculum that was used in their early Christian development. There are four areas that formed the curriculum for first century basic Christian discipleship, okay, according to this text. First one is he identifies the foundational teachings that they've received about washings. So look in your Bible at verse 2, and of instruction about washings. The actual word that's used here is baptismon, 
which not only sounds like baptism, but is the word that's used for baptism in the New Testament. And so, um, this word can describe baptisms. Uh, some people would say, and the word can be used of things more broadly than that, ceremonial washings, including baptism. To me, it seems that the context prefers baptisms. I'd prefer to translate this baptisms. Okay. Uh, he just finished describing their conversion, including repentance and faith. He now talks about their baptism. Not laying again that foundational teaching about baptism. They must also press beyond, you see the next one there, beyond the foundation of laying on of hands. In the early history of the church, laying on of hands was done frequently and for many different reasons. And it makes this hard to really know exactly what the author's speaking of here. The laying on of hands might speak of a symbolic act that followed baptism and symbolized the imparting of the Holy Spirit. Although it's probably about impossible for us to know for sure. Uh, although it's foreign and a bit mysterious to us in the modern church, it seems that laying on of hands was elemental or foundational for those in the early church. So they must move beyond this to more advanced things. Uh, they've already received instruction about baptism laying on of hands. Also then, you go to the next one. They are to press beyond the foundational teaching of the resurrection from the dead. And within Judaism, of course, there was a common belief in the future resurrection of those who had died who were faithful in the Old Covenant system. The Sadducees did not believe in a bodily resurrection, but they were in the minority. The Pharisees believed that there was a resurrection, and most Jewish people thought that. But of course, this is also true of Christianity. The doctrine of the resurrection is very important to us. It's an essential part, right, of foundational Christian teaching and profession. If Christ did not raise from the dead, then we won't be able to be raised either, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. So both Judaism and Christianity taught the doctrine of a bodily resurrection. Having said this, The doctrine of resurrection is something that any Christian learns at the beginning of their Christian experience. In other words, you can't be a Christian unless you understand some things about the resurrection of the dead. You need to know some things about Jesus, for instance. Well, there's one more foundational teaching he pushes them beyond. He says, finally, the, the author encourages his readers to move beyond the foundational teaching of eternal judgment. You can see that at the end of verse 2. Again, we're just walking right through the text. And of instructions about washings, laying on of hands, and resurrection of the dead, and instruction about eternal judgment. This is a doctrine of the Scripture that has to do with the fact that God will judge men and women in the future. Again, this is foundational Christian instruction that is taught all throughout the Bible. It's not only taught repeatedly in Hebrews. I saw this phrase, eternal judgment, three times in Hebrews. 
it is taught throughout the whole Old Testament scripture. It starts in Genesis 18. You can see this doctrine of eternal judgment for sin. It might even start before that, and it's woven throughout the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament scripture, and you go to the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus had some things to say about the fact that if you sin, you are under, you will face the eternal judgment of God in hell. Not only is that found in Matthew's gospel, it's woven throughout the whole new covenant as well, so that it also occurs even at the end in Revelation chapter 20, which talks about a great white throne judgment. And it describes the fact that those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, those who have not believed in Jesus and repented from their sins, will be cast into a lake of fire forever and ever. This is a major doctrine of the scriptures. So these four areas of teaching in verse 2, baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, eternal judgment, they represent basic Christian teaching and instruction, the barest beginnings of the Christian faith and of theological understanding. I mean, to this day, in the modern church, we often use curriculum for new discipleship. Okay, and that curriculum, that study, includes basic Christian instruction. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. But there's one other thing I want to show you about these six foundational things I want to emphasize with you today. These six things not only formed basic Christian instruction, as I've been alluding to in different places, they also were foundational to the teaching of Judaism. We, we walked through each one of these and we saw, okay, it's part in basic Christianity, but just consider for a moment it's part in basic Judaism. Jewish Old Covenant believers thought that the works of the Gentiles or of nations outside of Judaism were dead. And that what Gentiles needed to do is they needed to repent of those dead works and they needed to come under the Old Covenant system become a God-fearer and follower of Yahweh. Jewish Old Covenant believers also declared the importance of faith toward God, faith toward Yahweh. Jewish Old Covenant believers practiced the importance of washings and baptisms at the temple and the tabernacle. They, I mean, they were constantly washing themselves as a sign of, you know, or as a, uh, a, a desire for cleansing and healing from God. Jewish Old Covenant believers knew the importance of laying on of hands. This was demonstrated to them all the time. As they would come to the temple, the tabernacle, the priest would lay his hand on the sacrificial victim that they were bringing. He would lay the other hand on the person. Okay? And this was a mark to identify or associate the person with his sacrifice. They knew about laying on of hands. It was foundational to their teaching as well. Jewish Old Covenant believers were taught, uh, taught the hope of resurrection from the dead as well. And then finally, Jewish Old Covenant believers spoke frequently of eternal judgment, of those who were outside of the covenant. So as I come to verses 1 and 2 in my Bible, I wonder, why did the author of Hebrews choose these six things? Why, when he's talking about a foundation, does he choose these six things? And my personal opinion is that it may be that some of his professing believers, some of the audience, the original audience, the author of Hebrews, 
Some of them were proponents of a retreat or a unity centered around six basic teachings in, of Christianity and Judaism. Okay, so I, I wonder if this is the case, and, and, and I'll, I'll give you how one scholar looked at this, George Guthrie. He said, they may have been trying to survive with a minimal Christianity in order to avoid alienating their Jewish friends or relatives. See, some of the original audience, I think that they were thinking, okay, how can we make Christianity more palatable to our Jewish friends and relatives? Well, let's just see if we can have six things to agree on. Perhaps you're here today uh, and you're trying to get by with a minimal Christianity as well. You don't want to get too much into your Christian commitments so that your friends at work don't think you're strange or weird. Okay, so you come to church, you do the Christianity thing, you just think, okay, I'll do a little bit of this. I need to, like, believe the gospel, but, like, I don't want to get too radical because then people are going to think I'm strange in the workplace. They're going to think I'm bizarre. So you want your own form of, like, minimal Christianity. What can, I, what can I believe, preacher, so that I'm good to go with God in heaven, but uh, so that people don't think I'm strange at work? Some perhaps don't demonstrate avid, excited, sustained attention to God's word in private and public because it would make you so much different than your friends at school. Avid, excited, sustained attention to God's Word. But men and women, we need 16 and 17 and 18-year-old men and women who push away from the children's table. And they get into the Word. And they go and they eat with joy and abundance from the Word. And so it could be that there are some younger people among us who are just content to have a certain level of Bible knowledge, don't want to get too radical in this because all my friends will think I'm weird. The same thing could be true of elderly in retirement. You know, instead of just coasting and using retirement, actually use that retirement to get in, get into the Word, to deepen and grow, continue to go. Pressing on. Perhaps there's some in the room who won't get baptized. Because you don't want to, your family to get offended at the nature of your newfound faith. So you're content with being at the children's table instead of pressing on in your Christian faith. But men and women, you are either pushing forward or you're, you are slinking back. And the author of Hebrews shows you exactly what you need in these verses. What you need is maturity. You need to press on. So one other question I want to answer for you, and it's found in verse 3. You can do this very quickly. The second question is, how do you get it? So what do you need today? You need to press on to maturity. How do you get that? Look at verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. The word this here, I think, has two possible meanings. It might mean that it, it could refer to more advanced teaching. 
So the author will return to more advanced teaching about Christ and his Melchizedekian priesthood if God permits. Or better yet, I think the word this refers to Christian maturity. Since most of verses 1 and 2 are about pressing on to maturity, the author likely intends that here. They will press on to Christian maturity if God permits. Okay, and that leads us to this question. How do you get it? Now, we've already answered this in verses 1 and 2. One of the ways the author of Hebrews tells us how to get maturity is to press on or to go on, to push forward for it. However, in verse 13 or verse 3, we learn something else about maturity. Okay? It says that this pressing on to maturity is something we will do. Three important words. If God permits it. So we will press on to maturity only if God permits us or allows us to do this. And, you know, as I was reading through this, I'm just thinking, what exactly do those three words mean? If God permits. If God allows it? You know, when I first read this, I'm I'm like reading this, I think, of course God permits it or allows it. Right? But I think that the author might have something a little bit more specific in mind than this general desire of God for people to grow closer to him. And to help us see this, there's a, as I look throughout the whole New Testament, I could only find a, a statement like this in one other place in my Bible. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 7, Paul says, For I do not want to see you in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And a very similar instruction here. Paul, though, is, he's talking here about the very real possibility that the Lord might have other travel plans for him. He knows that he will only get back to Corinth for an extended stay with them if the Lord permits it or allows it. So, with this verse in Hebrews chapter 6, the author is dealing with the very real possibility that some of them will not press beyond basic instruction in their profession of Christ. You're still in Hebrews. So it's trying to figure this out. I think that the key might be later on in the passage. Look down in your Bibles at verse 7. Down in your Bibles at verse 7. In these verses, verses 78, the author talks about how God treats that which produces fruit and that which doesn't. Look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sakes it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if that land bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. So it may be, according to the author of Hebrews, that some of them might not press on beyond basic Christian teaching because they aren't producing fruit and they are ripe for God's severe judgment. They're like the land bearing thistles and thorns that's ready to be judged by God. So if God permits or allows it, 
some of the authors, dull hearers, may, may press beyond the basics of Christianity. Others will be severely judged by God. That's what I think this means. If the Lord permits it, if God permits it, we will press on to maturity. So as we close, men and women, this is a very strong warning meant to confront those who are dull of hearing, those who are unskilled in the word of righteousness, those who have little appetite to learn more about Jesus, those who are content with just the basics and who have little desire for spiritual fruit. Men and women, you need spiritual maturity. And the way you get there is that you press on and you pray to the only one who can make spiritual growth occur.